0: Log Talk Radio.
1: From the baddest borough in the world, Brooklyn, New York, it's Blazing Rye Radio. On the show, Tony Award winner Betty Buckley. And the runner-up of the Bravo Series Platinum Hit, Jeff Stoodack, featuring the blazing ride
2: panel.
1: And now, the man avoiding Wall Street at all costs, Ryan
2: Holmes!
1: Hey everybody, what's going on? It's Friday, September 30th, 2011. Glad to have you tuning in to Blaze and Rye Radio. Quite a show we have coming up for you, but first, let's start off with something we always do at the top of the show. It is the Blaze and Rye panel. Today... I am joined by a director and choreographer whose uh, play Desmona, a play about a handkerchief, is now playing at the Bridge Theater in New York City, Mr. Tom I am also joined by uh, the producer of this show, uh, the Richter to my O'Brien, the Soledad to my O'Brien, the O to my Brian, Jonathan DeMar. Jonathan, Tom, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Hey, welcome. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, sure. <laughs> or I should take um, Okay, so let's get right down to it. Um, crazy story in hockey. Uh, someone, um, uh, Mr. Morehouse is his name, was accused of uh, throwing a banana on the ice at one of the only African-American players uh, in the NHL. Uh it seems like it might be a racially-tinted incident. However, there's also an intolerance uh claim pending against the um the player himself, uh Wayne Simmons, the Philadelphia Flyer, uh who allegedly uh mouths anti gay uh slurs at another player. Uh Jonathan DeMar, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's kind of unacceptable in this day and age um to for any sort of gay slurs. Um I think in sports and from what I understand, uh the whole thing as sort of uh, a lot of uh, there are certain uh, things to the story. But, I mean, he, there should just be zero tolerance, period. I mean, we've moved so far in this country. And to think that this is coming out. I always seem to think that in sports, I, I don't know about you, Tom, but it's, I always seem to think now in sports, we're hearing more of these stories of intolerance and uh, not just with sexuality, with all sorts of things. I think there was a fight that broke out in Canada a few months ago that I remember at some sort of hockey game. I mean, I feel like it's such a rough area. Well, imagine I mean, that a so, fight at a hockey game—that's crazy, huh? Uh, and Tom Fogarty, what do you think yeah. of the fact that Jonathan DeMar is saying there should be a zero-tolerance policy? How do you implement that in the NHL? Uh,
3: ooh, I'm not sure I would even begin to fathom how you implement that because it's something that's so deep-seated in culture. I mean, you look at hockey—you oh, know—and hockey is what I'll tell you. One thing that's always amazed me is that when you just look. At the men that play hockey, there's something about them that they end up being the prettiest men in sports, whatever that's about. <laughs> and the fact that they also seem to be the most, you know, anti-gay and racist—just food for thought, you know. And uh, I think
1: they're probably in the closet, but uh, you know.
3: Well, yeah, and I, you know, and that's why it was so easy to pick on Sean Avery just because he came out being pro-gay marriage, and then suddenly, well, he must be gay. Uh, whether he is or isn't. It shouldn't detract from the stance that that he had the balls to take, and then, you know, people are all up in his face over it. But it's rampant in all the sports, you know, until someone finally breaks that barrier and who's a big-time person and comes out while they're still on top and not, you know, five years later when they have a book coming out and it'll sell the book. You know, it's going to stay
1: that way. Right. Sure. And I think that there have been vast uh, improvements in sports in terms of uh the The gay rights issue in past few years, you know Steve Young, who's obviously a Mormon, came out for gay marriage and uh, things have been uh, uh, getting better, but of course we still have these absurd incidents that you think that it wouldn 't happen in two thousand and eleven but unfortunately it still does um, but and the charge I think was uh, definitely correct uh, corrected them to do and uh I find it funny mm-hmm. you know when you look at the story highlights this morning, they said the charge not a criminal offense. I <laughs> I it's yeah. just I find that to be hilarious but I mean in some ways <laughs> it is sort of a personal offense and so I think that was right for them to charge that. Absolutely. Like if you're going and to what be mid- the one guy, the banana guy of a hate crime, then you're going to have to accuse the guy that was thrown the banana at of a hate crime as well and it all is just a big nasty cycle it seems. Yeah. Uh moving on. Right, so on they, on, they never go
3: after the people who throw squid out on the ice.
1: Oh. Ew, squid. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, be upset about that. That would be a necessity. <laughs>
2: um,
1: okay, so uh, the Michael Jackson uh, right. murder trial, uh, essentially, is going on right now. Dr. Conrad Murray is on trial. Uh, he's guilty. Of, you think he's guilty. Accused <laughs> of injecting that lethal dose of propofol. Uh, Tom Fogarty, you say guilty. Uh
3: yeah I mean the man knew what he was doing, and he was around, and he had a good thing going. I mean he was protecting his investment, and that seems mm-hmm. to be what's coming out person after person who gets up there. you know I'm just sort of upset that we're not back in the old days of court t v where this would be front and center, and everybody would be home <laughs> watching it, you know, waiting to see who's gonna get in a <laughs> you uh, want a, a <laughs> Range Rover and drive around l a <laughs>
1: I do miss those car chases. Uh, I know. The fact, Honor the good Jonathan, old days. <laughs> Jonathan Demar, what do you think about the fact um, that the defense's argument is that Dr. Murray had left the room, and that is when the King of Pop administered the lethal dosage of propofol himself after um, digesting five tablets of lorazepam. Yeah, I mean, I am not a medical expert, so you're the wrong so I'm the wrong guy to ask about this, but uh, I do think it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions to be answered, and, you know, there have been a lot of journalists covering this case. Um, The one thing I will say about this Dr. Murray guy, um, you know, what seems obvious to me is he's very frantic, and especially when you're frantic in court like that, something is going on. I mean, there are people who have problems, but Let's face it. If you're like that frantic in court, where it's where you're shouting, I mean, I, I don't think you're ob- you're innocent in any way. It just doesn't seem like that would be the case. And um, I will <laughs> apparently uh, he, he screams something along the lines, "Get help! Get security! Get Prince!" <laughs> <laughs> this is apparently what um, uh, Chase. Um, who was testifying that afternoon was saying, and I, that's just hilarious to me. Well, why is why do you think that's funny? I don't understand. Get, do you think he means get Prince the singer? That, at first, that's what I thought, yes. Oh, but he meant <laughs> Prince. Oh, Prince like, no. oh, you know what's funny when I look... Okay, this is the fault of the producer. When I looked at the story this morning, and I saw that line, I was going through the script. I was going through this so quickly, And I did not see, and it did not click with me, the whole Prince Jackson. I thought, but get the singer. I thought it was just some crazy quote coming out from somewhere, like the guy was
2: nuts. Wow. That's a good one, Jonathan.
1: You you know, I I do want to interject here. I watched a lot of CSI
2: in those
3: shows, and I find it kind of interesting that I don't think the way that uh, Dr. Murray has like been describing this would play out in one of those shows at all, because I've never seen a cadaver jump up and you know give themselves the fatal blow. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so you think he was already a cadaver by that point before the, the the time frame that the defense is suggesting that he got up and gave himself. The well, notice. it
3: seems pretty clear, and I mean you know just the deterioration that he was that he was under those last few days from from the way it's starting to sound, you know it's just. I don't know. There's a lot of sad things that went on there and it it goes yeah. back to childhood even with that one. I mean it's just you know, at what at what point can you try to save someone who's who's spiraling that out of control? True. And look at of course That's who real- his closest friends were. People like Liza and Elizabeth mm-hmm. Taylor, all people who had like been through the same sort of, you know oh, yeah. propped up abused childhood situations that
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, just a reminder, we have Tony Award winner Betty Buckley coming up in just a minute. Uh, last topic, um, there is a guy in New York who attempted to murder his ex-girlfriend uh, by he was going to kill a bear, dress up in the bear's outfit or skin or whatever, I should say, uh, wear bear paws, et cetera, and and make it look like a bear attack. Then he decided he was going to hire a hitman to crash a car into her, and he gave him like a knife to split. Split her throat. In case that didn't work, Jonathan Demar. In one word, how does that make you feel? Terrified. Completely terrified. terrified. Tom Fogarty, how does that make you feel? Grizzly. What was that? Grizzly. Well, the whole. You know, I think this should be a new
3: question on the SATs. You know, someone could really try to solve that conundrum that he sort of posed there.
1: Right. You know, if you're
3: wearing the bear claws and you're trying not to well, yeah, you got it. Well, the whole
1: thing made me feel, frankly, a certain way. Absolutely.
2: We're a certain-
1: That it seems like it's a bit of an excessive ordeal to go through to have to you gotta go and hunt the bear down and then figure out how to wear the bear's skin and put the bear's feet on your shoes, et cetera uh when clearly you could just take care of something with something like an accidental drug overdose uh as we had previously discussed, or you know a gun it, the whole thing made me feel a certain way uh Jonathan Tom. I understand you felt certain ways, too. Thank you guys so much for joining the panel.
3: Thanks a lot. And be sure and give Betty Buckley a shout-out to her horse, Honeybear Bear, for me. <laughs> will do. Okay,
1: thanks,
0: Thank right. Bye. Bye, Ryan.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Uh, so, my first guest is a Tony Award-winning actress who will be returning to New York this fall with her show, Amen, the Boys of Broadway at Feinstein's, beginning next Tuesday at the Regency. Please welcome... Ms. Betty
0: Buckley. Boy, what a welcome. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, I don't understand. They always come over here and look at me talking to the guests. I don't know why they're not going to you instead.
0: <laughs> Hi. Is this Ryan?
1: This is. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, um, happy,
0: happy to talk to you. I've been reading your tweets on Twitter. I get
1: so excited every time you tweet back at me, too. Yes, because we've been in Twitter correspondence for a while now, now right here on the phone.
0: Yes, yeah. hello. Very hello. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, It's a real pleasure to have you on the program. I understand that you're you're home in Texas now, correct?
0: I am, yeah. I'm sitting here looking out my back windows at my windy pastures and the trees, and this kind of storm came through here last night with major, major lightning, and now today it's left us with kind of nice, fresher air, but... A lot of wind.
1: Oh, dear. Do you do something special to protect your horse from that sort of weather?
0: Uh, well, today it's nice. It's all sunny and windy, but and they're out there running because the wind makes them all crazy. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: Got you. Um, now, I I also noticed that you teach down there in Texas. You, you offered classes in Fort Worth. Did anyone there know what a musical was?
0: Uh, yeah, actually, Fort Worth is very, very astute. I grew up in Fort Worth, and um, my great teachers, uh, Ed Holliman and Larry Howard, had me completely prepared. They had danced with uh, in several Bob Fosse production shows, and uh, mm-hmm. they decided to retire in Fort Worth and teach. And So they had me so prepared, I got my first Broadway show, which was 1776, my first day in New York City. And we have a very nice regional theater here, and uh, the Bass Hall brings in tour, you know, touring productions. And our uh, art center area you know, boasts two world-class museums, the Kemble Art Museum mm-hmm. and the uh, Modern Art Museum. And uh, it's quite a cultural place. A lot of people, families settled here. It used to be a cavalry fort and then a big cattle shipping area in the days of the Old West and a lot of oil-moneyed um, families settled here and raised their kids here and like the Bass family which is uh, you know very renowned very wealthy family that is a huge supporter of the arts all over the world you know um so yeah it's a very uh, culturally refined area if you can imagine in Texas
1: wow yeah you know, our our New York elitism makes us lose sight of other places it's that true. might be true. vibrant. A lot of people well. are like,
0: Texas, oh, that's so provincial. And, no, uh, we're <laughs> not we're not totally hicks, although, you know, we've got a lot of crazy thinkers down here that support silly people. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, uh, yes, my the... class is at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, and uh, it's a really oh, beautiful cool. space with a great grand piano and it's it, yeah it's fun when I'm in town I teach there. So.
1: Cool. Now are the crazy thinkers that you just mentioned are people allowed to be gay there just yet or are men still hiding their love of show tunes?
0: No, we have we have gay people here too. <laughs> <laughs> My two teachers were gay. <coughs> Excuse me. And were were they openly the-
1: openly gay when you had them?
0: Uh yes, you know I didn't know what that was when I was 11 years old but yeah.
1: Mhm. Uh, so, now, what do you think of all these these pop musicals coming to Broadway? Should, do you think a show like Spider-Man or Ghost, do you think they should be left to the main screen?
0: Uh, I don't really have opinions about that. If anybody wants to write a musical and go through the, the years of labor that it takes, number one, and, and the commitment long-term that it takes, number two, then more power to them, you know? It's like I can't yeah. predict. I saw a show off-Broadway some years ago called, uh, you know, uh, Bat Boy. And um, that was directed by my friend Scott Schwartz, and that was one of the best musicals I've ever seen. And who would have thought that, uh, you know, I was sitting there in complete humility and awe watching the show, thinking, oh, my God, if they'd sent this script to me, I would have thought Bat Boy, the musical based on the cartoon, you know, I wouldn't have gotten it at all. And yet they wrote this, and it was wonderful and scott schwartz had this vision for it and it was fantastic so who am i to say i i have no idea what's going to work or when or why you know so more power everybody that gets a musical on for any duration of a run is like fantastic it's great
1: yeah awesome um and you have obviously quite a resume of work on broadway cats sunset boulevard carrie um could you pick a favorite
0: well, I guess my two best working experiences, as far as you know, really on a quest to learn how to play the part and have a, you know, working with genius collaborators, were Cats and you know playing the role of Grisabella and Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Getting to do the great role of Norma Desmond for a year in London, and a year on Broadway. In both cases, my director was Trevor Nunn, who I think is the greatest director in the world. Um, and he's, you know, just a, he's a genius, visionary, um, brilliant director, and so it was a tremendous opportunity to get to work with him more than once, and, and actually for three, three productions: Cats, Sunset London, Sunset wow. New York. And um, so, yeah, those were my most challenging and, you know, wondrous work experiences, um, and the reward for which was great. You know, I really enjoyed that. But I also loved being in a musical called The Mystery of Edwin Drood, where I played a male impersonator in the British Music Hall who played a young boy and a young man. Um, And that was great. And that cast was remarkable, and it was just a really fun, really fun work experience. It was presented by the Public Theater at first in the park, in Central Park in New York City. It was a big success there, and then we moved to Broadway. And it was so much fun. It was just a blast going to work, you know.
1: Absolutely, and doing theater in in the open air there in Central Park—nothing really be Well, I guess maybe opening that on Broadway might beat that, but that sounds pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it was cool, except when we were rained out or when a bug would fly in your mouth while you're singing. <laughs> <But>
1: <laughs> did that happen? That, did you get bugs in your mouth?
0: Yeah, well, I you know when I was a kid, when I was 16, I sang at the Campus Review at Six Flags Over Texas, and so mm-hmm. I first learned to deal with flying insects while you're singing there. And so um, I remember the first time a bug flew in my mouth while I was belting out the Rose of Washington Square, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how to make sure you don't swallow it, spit it out between the lyrics and keep going. <laughs> wow.
1: How do you cover that? Do you just,
0: <laughs> you just sing
1: through it and hope he the bug will fly really out? It's or... really silly,
0: but it's, uh, it happens, you know. Kamikaze, <laughs> night, nighttime bugs, you know, with all the, the spotlights and stuff. It was really funny
1: kamikaze nighttime bug. Uh-huh. Um, now, the Tony that you won, uh, Betty, was for uh, Cats, of course. Where do you keep that Tony, and is it as heavy as it's cracked up to be?
0: It's a nice o- nice award. It's beautiful. Um, it sits on my piano. I have a an upright Steinway piano that's traveled with me um, for many years. I, I bought it in New York at Steinway. <clears throat> After, Excuse me. I've got allergies today because of this wind. Um, I had this... Sure. Friend of mine who's a pianist go with me from piano shop to piano shop to play the same piece of music on all these pianos that I could afford, and because um, I needed one for my rehearsal work, you know. And um, I found this beautiful little Steinway with this very wonderful sound and purchased it. So it's it's traveled with me from apartment to apartment and home to home and um, lives with me here and at the ranch. And my Tony's mm-hmm. there
1: awesome and you uh now the the story behind how you just mentioned that cats was you know a great learning experience in terms of the craft i love the story about how you went to your voice teacher during the previews of the run can you uh just talk about that a bit and how he got uh how he helped you get grizzabella out of you
0: yeah uh, the uh <coughs> excuse me <coughs> i'm having a really hard time today sorry Oh um, no problem it's um yeah, the job assignment when they cast me was stop the show. And
1: which is very difficult <laughs> that assignment.
0: Well, I never had I didn't know there was an actual formula for stopping a show.
1: <laughs> right. And
0: uh I you know whenever I had stopped a show or got a huge response from an audience, it was quite by chance and I it was always very spontaneous and I I couldn't put my finger on why what the dynamics were that made that happen. And so during the previews it took them 6 months to cast the show and um mm-hmm. when i auditioned originally they said that i didn't i wasn't right for isabella because they were looking for someone who was small petite because elaine page had done it in london and she's very small, right. very petite um they were looking for a petite person who you know radiated death and dying and i radiated health and well-being so yeah because yeah, I'm a tall girl from Texas, and so I told my agents they'd be back because I just had this really strong feeling about it, and six months later, they called, called me back and I auditioned again for Trevor Nunn, and so anyway, he finally took a chance and hired me because I assured him that if he wanted me to get smaller and lose weight, et cetera, I could do that, and so, and mm-hmm. that I would do that, and so anyway, I started working on the show, and he is a brilliant director, but I kept trying to interpret him literally, and so I was he wanted a, a, a response of pathos from the audience, so I was playing the role rather pathetically, to tell the truth, and uh, it wasn't stopping the show, and I couldn't understand what I was doing wrong, and so I mm-hmm. called my voice teacher, who I'd studied with for 13 years at that point. I ultimately studied with him for 19 and a half years he was a really great teacher named paul gabbard and he said come over on your lunch break because we were rehearsing in the day and performing in the show in our previews at night and um, they had been calling special rehearsals for me like you know hour-long rehearsal with andrew Lloyd Webber, just playing the song over and over and over again and he would say well placido domingo came to see the show and said just tell the girl to just sing the song and I said, mm-hmm. well, but I am just singing the song. I couldn't understand what what was wrong, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. so then, you know, Trevor would call special rehearsals, and I would talk about. He w- he would talk about you know Shakespearean references like The Winter's Tale. One afternoon, he told me the whole story of The Winter's Tale, and for the life of me, I couldn't understand how it applied to Grisabella. But I was certainly out there trying, you know, and nothing was working. So I went to my teacher on my lunch break, and he threw a pillow on the floor, and he said, beat this pillow. And I was like, Paul, you know, this isn't going to work. A kinetic exercise this late in the game isn't going to work. He said, beat the pillow. So I beat the pillow, and I beat the pillow, and I started crying and crying and crying, and I heard this little girl's voice inside me say, I'm here, too. I'm here, too. And I realized, I mean, it sounds so dopey and new age, but... Um, I realized that the one person I hadn't consulted as to how to play the part was the kid inside me who's the one who likes to do the singing. And So sure. uh, I kind of followed my in, intuition of this inner awareness. And then I went to this bookstore and found a book of homeless people that really radiated all this light. And I started following homeless people around on the streets of New York. And then I saw, I really realized that there were any number of women on the streets of New York who were exactly my age. I was 35, and um, who had eyes very similar to mine, and I started hearing the resonance of the line, you know, um, there but for the grace of God, go I. And then one morning I was coming out of my apartment on the Upper West Side, and this homeless woman with kind of wild, crazy hair like Grizabella, the same color as Grizabella's wig, and white, pasty makeup and red lipstick that was smeared kind of was floating past me down the street, and she just looked at me like, Gosh, I wish I could share with you all that I know, but you don't have time, and neither do I. So later, and just kind of floated off with this beautiful dignity, and um, and and so I got a real insight as to you know that that was a real different idea, uh, a, a portrait of the character than I had previously considered. Uh huh. And then wow. the
2: um, universe, so... just,
0: you know, in, in the chance that I didn't get the message sent me another woman quite like her that crossed my path outside the winter garden stage door one night after the show and finally i started seeing and feeling this sense of oh he wants a a of pathos but for me the journey is about her dignity and her desire to share from her heart not beg for acceptance but to share instead all that she knows and and you know, loves and feels and experiences, and so it took me about two weeks to collate all that through the 13-minute journey throughout the show of Grisabella's path. And they kept coming to me, and I kept saying, "I said, uh, you know, I'm in transition." And they were like, "Oh, she's in transition." And so they gave me a break instead of firing me, which was amazing. And two weeks later, um, the night before the opening night, which happened to be the critic night, thankfully it all came together and i stopped the show and um it 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 was amazing and it continued to stop the show af- after that so it was remarkable but my teacher was a great teacher and um the insights that followed from his uh support and counsel led me to the role
1: that's so interesting that it just is the the beginning of of you truly understanding what the problem was was just listening to That little kid and going with your instincts is probably a great acting lesson.
0: Yeah, it was huge, and I I realized that, excuse me, I realized after that that I, the way to work with directors, even the most brilliant directors in the world, is not always to try to interpret them literally, but to let their words and what they're trying to communicate, you know, uh, resonate inside you, and then go with what that resonance is, but not a literal interpretation, because we can't interpret each other literally. You know, if you say that the color. If you say the word blue, mm-hmm. I I will have no idea really what blue you mean, you know. But right. I it, I have to go with what that resonance is inside me, and so
1: Absolutely. after and you that I fear...
0: through that process right, of learning to work on memory and and Grizabella, I felt that I would found a way of of how to how to work really how to work and how to take direction.
1: That's so cool. Uh, you always hear uh that you know, from from comedians it was the utmost honor in comedy, uh, being asked by Johnny Carson to join him after they did their stand up set. you were asked back over to the couch after you sang memories. That must have been a, a cool moment, huh?
0: Yeah, he was great. I, he really I he had me come back on that show several times actually. Um, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. He he was a lovely man and treated me beautifully, beautifully.
1: That's awesome. Um, now, okay, so Betty, uh, let's talk about your show, Amen, The Boys of Broadway. Now, in this show, you sing nothing but songs uh, written for male characters. What made you want to sing these mannish songs?
0: Um, well, I, you know, I played the, the young, the male impersonator who played Edwin Drood, and then an old right. man on Broadway, and I was fascinated by that, and. George Rose, who was the played the leading you know the the m c of our show um, kind of mentored me, and so did this wonderful actor named Joe Grafossi as to how to play a boy and so I really enjoyed that and had a great time and There's a great heritage of male impersonators in uh the British Music hall, which was a predecessor to vaudeville and then a predecessor vaudeville was of course a predecessor to musical comedy which then became musical theater. And in those days, <clears throat> girls with voices like mine couldn't sing in opera because it was very categorical in opera. You know, the, <laughs> the lyric soprano was the love interest. The mezzo-soprano was the mother <clears throat> or the the woman with authority and the alto was usually the um, the villainous of some kind, you know, or some aging queen or something. Anyway... Um, I'm fascinated by that history and evolution of girls in pants roles and what that's meant to the evolution of the Broadway girl singer. Yeah. So I had a really good time doing that. And some of my favorite songs are sung by men. And so to give myself the excuse to sing these songs that I've always loved, um, I thought, oh, I'll just do an evening of all the beautiful songs that I love from... Broadway shows that men sing, and the proprietor of Feinstein's, which is a one, who's a wonderful guy named John Iacchetti, loved the idea. So I had the idea a year ago when I was last at Feinstein's. Since I moved back to Texas seven and a half years ago, and Feinstein's has been bringing me back once a year to New York for extended engagements, and I'm so grateful to them for that because it just gives me a wonderful month in New York, and I when i do my shows there i feel like i'm throwing a party every night and i get to see all my old friends that i haven't seen for a long time and it's really a blast and i'm very grateful for, to them for that opportunity so i always yeah. collaborate with them on what show they'd like to see next and so he liked that idea and so i spent the past year you know collecting that music and i i'm working with my friend eric stern who's a brilliant musical director as my musical consultant to select the songs and um, a wonderful writer named Eric Kornfeld who wrote me a great piece of special material for my last Feinstein show with John McDaniel, um, that was very funny and people really enjoyed. So I, I asked him to write me a piece of special material and to help me, you know, write the show and he did and then I'm working with Christian Jacob, who's a wonderful pianist that I've been working with for the past couple of years, but this is the first time I've hired him as an arranger, and he's written me some beautiful arrangements, along with Eric's arrangements as well. And So I'll be there with Christian and the bassist, Peter Barche, and the drummer, percussionist, Anthony Pinciotti, and it's going to be really fun, I think. I hope so, anyway. I'm having fun putting it together, at least.
1: (laughs) I'm sure it'll be a blast. Is there a a male role that you've always wanted to play, if there was some sort of uh, gender reversal in a production?
0: Well, the first show that I really really loved was West Side Story, and I didn't just love Riff and Russ Tamblin; I wanted to be Riff, and mm-hmm. so I auditioned for that show at Casa Manana when I was fifteen, and I didn't get the part of Riff, obviously, so I wanted to play play anybody's. So I just wanted to be in the Jets, you know I just wanted to be one of the games, mm-hmm. so they hired me to be Baby John's girlfriend, and I danced at the dance at the gym. That summer, and I also played Dainty June that summer in Gypsy. So that was my first summer where I got my equity card and started working in musical theater. Mm -hmm. But I love the Jets. (laughs) I love (laughs) West Side Story, but there's no part for me, so i basically learned all the parts.
1: (laughs) Wow! So you you couldn't play one male role, so you just learned them all.
0: I yeah, because when I was in the show, I only I was only in the dance of the gem. So I would stand at the – our theater used to be in the round, and so it was the the stage and ramps running down to the stage in the center and Mm -hmm. uh, in this dome theater designed by Buckminster Fuller and uh, the Geodesic Dome. And so I would watch the show, every performance, and I just loved our cast so much and I loved the characters so much. Of course, I absorbed the whole thing.
1: Yes. That's awesome. Um, now, uh, you know, my male dream role would be Usnavi and In the Heights, and it's not that I'm the wrong gender, I'm the wrong race, so I don't think I'll uh-huh. ever play him. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it's frustrating, isn't
1: it? It is so frustrating because I know I got skills. Uh, but <laughs> I know <laughs> I got
0: skills, yeah.
2: <laughs> um,
1: I know that you have a new album coming out in the spring, it's 2012, called Coast Light. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the producer of the record, the legendary T-Bone Burnett and you, grew up in fort worth together and i heard he made your first record when you were 19 is that correct
0: yes he he owned a recording studio in fort worth if you can imagine from the time he was 17 and he was kind of a renowned figure around town and uh, our our mothers were very good friends he went to pascal high school and i went to arlington heights but we had some mutual friends in common close friends musicians and stuff so i knew of him and uh, our mothers were friends and my mother wanted an archival recording of my voice and so I went in one afternoon to his studio with this jazz trio that I'd been working with around town and mm-hmm. we were both 19 and he recorded the first recording of my voice. It there was only two copies of this reel to reel tape and one I gave to my first boyfriend and the other I gave to well my first love I should say. Um The other I gave gave to my first agent, who signed me when I was a junior in college, as a Christmas gift. And this agent's name was Roger Hess, and he kept the recording all these years. He played it for Phil Bursch at Playbill, um, the the publisher of Playbill, who was starting his own record label. And he wanted to release the archival recording as a recording. So I think it was like two and a half, three years ago, he, he released the record as the first album I never had, called uh, Betty Buckley, 1967. And our, Timon and I stayed in touch through the years, and he you know, went on to become this major record producer, and I went on to you know, do Broadway and film and television. He, um, he called me last summer and said, I've got some time, let's make our next record. Let's do a new record. And I said, great. So I went out to L.A., and he hired seven musicians that were amazing and we made this gorgeous record, and I'm so excited about it. It's really, really very romantic, very haunting, and very, very beautiful, and it's uh, it's coming out in, I hope, the spring of 2012.
1: That's awesome. Um, just a reminder that we have Jeff Hoodak coming out from uh, Platinum Hit, but uh, Betty, I have to ask you this before you go. Last month you were on an episode of Pretty Little Liars on ABC Family that your brother Norm directed. There's talk about bringing you back on the show. How was that being a fan favorite on that show?
0: Oh, it was great. This uh, wonderful producer, uh, showrunner on the, on Pretty Little Liars, wrote the role for me. Oliver Goldstick wrote the role of Regina for me after my brother brought him to see me in concert at uh, in L.A. At, the, at a concert we did for Reprise. And he wrote me this genius character who's just way over the top and very funny. And my brother directed me, which was the second time he's directed me. I did an episode of Melrose Place with him with a really tiny cameo last Mm -hmm. year. And so this year I had this great part. And everybody really loved the character, so there's a very good chance that she'll be a recurring character in the the new season. So we'll see.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Well, uh, Betty... Having been in, in theater for a long time now, and now I'm talking to uh, all these theater people every week, uh, it is <clears throat> one of the biggest honors on this show I've had so far to have you on. Thank you so much for coming Well, thank
0: on. you, Ryan. It was great talking to you. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Come, come Take care. Come see my new
0: show if you can at Feinstein's. We'll be there. In, we open October 4th, and we'll be there the whole month of October.
1: I would I would love to. I'll come check it out. On then, the boys of Broadway at Feinstein's through October 29th, you say. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, Betty.
0: Thank you Ryan. Bye-bye.
1: Hi. Right, take care. All right. Um that was Betty Buckley. Uh next up we have from Platinum Hits. Uh we have Jess Hudak coming up. Uh while we're waiting for her to let's well, you know what? I just got back from Venice, uh Italy for my best friend's wedding and what a fantastic trip I had. Um it was it was a really uh beautiful experience. Uh, I had never actually met my friend's wife before. She is Italian, um, and they met at a program in Italy. uh, And my friend had in the past had not had the greatest taste in women. Um, But then uh, I loved loved his wife. I love his wife. I'm so happy it happened. I believe we have our next guest on now. Um, So uh, my next guest was the runner-up on the hit Bravo series Platinum hit, She has an EP out called National Holiday and will be performing a free show next Monday at Rockwood Music Hall. Please welcome the talented Jeff Hudak. (laughs) Hello.
4: Wow, that is a huge crowd you got in there.
1: (laughs) Massive crowd. I wish they would all leave my apartment. (laughs) <laughs> um but thank you just so much for coming on uh hey, thanks i for heard having me. that you just got into new york yesterday from la how does it mm-hmm. feel to be here in the big apple as we say
4: oh it's it's actually pretty difficult for me to come back because every time i come back i'm like i need to move back what am i doing like i feel so alive <laughs> here so i just love it i you know uh go to the corner get the most delicious cup of coffee ever it's great i love it
1: what's what's your favorite coffee shop
4: I mean, I, that's what I love about New York is you go to just like a little tiny convenience store and then they have like the most amazing steamed milk and coffee. Oh my goodness. So shout out to Ben's Deli on Avenue B.
1: (laughs) Shout out. Well, that's funny you say that because that, that feeling that you had that you get every time you come to New York, I lived in LA for two years. I had that feeling the moment I got there and it never left for two years, I had to leave and it just. Sucked to me in, and I stayed for two. But, yeah, I had to go to New York.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, it does that. Well, um, now, I see that you're originally, though, from St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, but eventually moved to Saratoga Springs. Now, somehow, yep. the only reason I, I remember that place is because a friend of mine was raving about the water there when he visited and said something about <laughs> being lucky. There were no horse races. What was it like to move there as a kid?
4: And Saratoga was uh, pretty amazing. Um, we actually moved there when I was 12, going on 13, right before seventh grade started from New Jersey. And well, I moved from a really, really small town. Like I would skip to, to elementary school every day in Jersey. So to go to Saratoga, it was a, a much bigger town and it was it, it's an amazing town for the arts and that's pretty much where i discovered my songwriting ability and where it really was like nurtured by the music community so i love saratoga all my family is still there that's what i call my hometown
1: Oh okay so there is a vibrant artistic community there
4: Oh yes there's i i got my start playing at this open mic night at a place called Cafe Lena which is still to this day the longest continuously run coffee house in the country. Mm-hmm. All the folk greats played there back in the day. And that's wow. pretty much where I, I discovered my, my songwriting talent and honed my craft.
1: So was it like people like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Richie oh, yeah, playing at that cafe?
4: The first time Don oh. McLean ever played American Pie was at Catalina. <laughs> really?
1: And <laughs> yep. he, what's funny about that is I think he's still in that cafe, still playing the song right now. It's
4: still, yes. Is it's, it's still going.
1: So <laughs> odd. Um Now – so you were playing piano at the age of eight and singing at the open mics, you, you just mentioned, by 13. Um, did your parents support you a lot as a kid in your artistic endeavors?
0: Oh,
4: absolutely. My mom was just like the biggest music lover. Still to this day, my mom will call me when she's at concerts and be like, I'm just gonna hold the phone up. This fiddle solo is amazing. Like, just <laughs> so her record collection was just so inspirational growing up. My dad always played instruments, always encouraged us. My older brother, he was a guitar prodigy when he was young, and um, we we always been playing music.
1: Your impression of your mom sounded like a cross between Carol Channing and Bill Cosby.
4: <laughs> well that's because she's whispering and the phone and it's loud and there's music so she'll just call me and be like i just i just want you to hear this guitar solo and then she'll just put the phone on the table
1: <laughs> that's awesome well it's great that you had such supportive parents growing up and Is now it? when you did make the move to la was it a rough transition and how are you liking it now
4: well it was if the time was right for me to go. I had lived in New York City for five years. I started not really knowing anyone or any how to do anything. And by the end, I was making a living. People kind of knew who I was because I was singing around town so much. And I was like, okay, I've, I am ready to try something new. And so I moved to L.A., kind of had made all my major mistakes in uh, New York City. So I consider L.A. kind of like my music career grad school. So I just had my, had my acts more together and now um, have a little studio in the house. It's, it's really great for writing and um, working with lots of other people because there is so much industry and other art, artists out in L.A.
1: Would you want to share any of these major mistakes that you made in New York?
4: <laughs> oh, you know, just <laughs> as a as a young girl, you know, as people will say, hey, I work for this famous person, and I want to work with you. And you're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Let's totally hang out. And then and then you're sitting there at, at some coffee shop or restaurant, and you slowly realize, well, this person is completely insane. How do I back <laughs> away slowly? I <laughs> had uh, a few sure. of those experiences. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Well, at least here they're uh, – Insane, but in LA you have those same experiences where they're like, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody, et cetera, and it just never gets you anywhere. And it's not entertaining. At least in New York, they're entertaining.
4: Yes, and at least my gut instinct is much stronger now, and I know I know when to trust it <laughs> and when to run. <laughs>
1: trust your—it's the whole thing we just talked about with Betty Buckley. Trust your instincts, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now I see here uh, that you toured with Enrique Iglesias as the sole female <laughs> singer. On the Central American yes. leg of the Insomniac tour, uh, any Enrique stories you can share with us? And was he an Insomniac as the title suggests?
4: <laughs> I don't really know. Um, I was uh, subbing on that on that gig for the regular backup singer, and it was so much fun because my friends, uh, a couple of my friends already played in the band, people I knew from New York. So it was it was just so much fun. And Enrique, I like basically. Met him right before our first gig together, and never had we never had like a rehearsal or anything. I had just like learned my stuff, and I was like, "Okay, hi, Mr. Enrique Iglesias. Of course, I'm ready to sing with you. Let's go do this."
2: So <laughs>
4: he was uh, he was just so charming, and he was really really sweet to me. And uh, he he always had a, has a lot of fun with the with the band, and he is quite the prankster. One thing I know: don't ever leave your cell phone anywhere near Enrique Iglesias. He will out? text. He will text everybody that you know. Something ridiculous.
1: <laughs> will they be sex, dirty texts?
4: He he he's a creative fellow.
1: <laughs> did he do that with your phone?
4: He didn't with mine, but every it was like the first thing everybody told me. They're like, whatever you do, <laughs> don't leave your phone. Now were <laughs> you in
1: pre mole surgery or post mole surgery?
4: I believe it was post. And how surgery.
1: how handsome did he look without that mole on his face?
4: He is very handsome. He's like just one of those people that has that aura when he walks into a room. You're like, wow, okay, yes, yes, yeah. uh, you are. <laughs> you got something going on. So he's he's just a a beautiful man.
1: <laughs> beautiful man. Um, now let's talk, Jess, about platinum hit here for a second. This was uh, I'd imagine quite an experience for you being on a show like this and having mm-hmm. to write songs within such a short time frame. Uh, what was the experience like for you, and how did it start? How did you hear about it initially?
4: Well, I heard about it from a few people. Um, uh, I have a really amazing community of friends, and uh, everybody was like, hey, this sounds like this would be perfect for you, and everybody sent me the audition notice, and I was like, at the moment I read it, I was like, oh, I can win this. I'm going to be on this, and it just, I never lost that Feeling, I was like, no, this was made for me. I was made for this. I'm gonna be on this, and so I just, I was so excited to be there. I was like, thank you for making the show that's in my head. Hooray! And um, uh, I just kept going back and getting called back, and it just, it was just one of those things where everything lined up perfectly. It felt right. My instincts were saying this is the right thing, and um, and then it ended up being an amazing experience for my songwriting. I, I've just completely grown and changed as a songwriter, and that's what I'm most happy about.
1: That's awesome. This song uh three, which you wrote for the finale happened to be one of the best selling tracks of the season. Can you talk oh, you. about the process of writing that song and how it differed from maybe when when you started on the show?
4: Yeah, um that was I think uh the third episode and I hadn't placed uh in our hook challenges in the first two um in the first two weeks. So I was like, okay, what am I doing wrong? I need to just go with what I feel in my heart. And just not even worry about if it's good or not. And then that's when it finally, uh, I wrote the chorus. Um, Sometimes you gotta leave that whole part, and they they really resonated with it. I was like, okay, I'm f- figuring this out. And uh, that that episode was really funny. We had to go to a. Roach Motel to uh to write this song to get inspired on the road trip. But it was a pretty hilariously gross um <laughs> motel room. Yes, there were uh cockroach carcasses in the bed. I oh, did sleep oh. on the floor. It was pretty Ew. intense. But overall we I'm really proud of the song that uh we wrote and that was I think that week was one of the biggest compliments I ever got from Natasha Beddingfield, you know, just saying that she could hear herself singing it. Um, nobody else got a comment like that all season from the guest artist judge. So that was a huge moment just in my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you go to a Roach Motel because you felt the need to free yourself from that hotel? Was that the inspiration? We the did.
4: Ball? We were like I gotta get away from these bugs biting me. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um and I understand, Jeff, that you had quite a thing for one of the contestants on the show, Johnny. <laughs> uh what's what's going on there you guys still together
4: we uh we aren't dating no we are still friends though he is actually going to be joining me at the show on monday at rockwood music hall so we do stay in touch i'm in la he's in new york no it's not awkward at all (laughs)
2: Uh um
4: we've seen each other a bunch of times we have nothing but love for each other so um yeah we 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 definitely like each other but we are not in fact still dating (laughs)
1: So you're not sending Enrique Iglesias, like texts to him?
4: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um and what was it like getting uh critiqued by people like Kara Degouri and Jules through that whole process?
4: It was pretty pretty intense. Uh they just will you down. Um mm-hmm. and it's up to you to to build yourself back up again. Um, But, you know, that's the only way that, as an artist, you're going to get better. Me, myself, I I like that feedback. And to get that kind of feedback from somebody who has written so many successful songs and has worked with so many artists, that's invaluable. And I want them to be honest and be totally blunt with me because, in the end, it made me such a better and stronger writer and even just more confident overall because I learned how to stand up for myself to learn how to take what they're saying and, and, you know, not, not beat myself up about the things that I'm doing wrong. Just try to see how I can improve. So, but they, they were pretty harsh. Jewel and uh, Keith Naftali definitely had some, had some uh, strong words for me a couple of times, but I think I, I think I showed them in the end.
1: <laughs> what was the hardest thing you had to hear? What, what were the strongest, harshest words you heard during the show?
4: Um, I, Keith and Jewel um, said that they didn't think that I was deep, like I wasn't a deep writer. And that, that really hurt me because that was after the um, Road Trip song. Uh, mm-hmm. And I felt like I had gotten really honest and, and went really deep into my feelings with that song. So that was really, like, weird and painful to hear. I don't think they aired that um, that feedback, but it was when I are like, yeah, I, don't know. I just don't know if you're deep. And then I was just, like, utterly destroyed for... A couple hours, and then I was
0: like, "Okay, I gotta get deep."
1: <laughs> so, um, well, that's so fascinating. Uh, I guess if you're going to be berated by anyone, it may as well be people who have sold millions of records.
4: Yes, around. I will listen to what they have to say. I'm gonna be like, "You don't know what you're talking about." I'm like, yeah, yep, <laughs> you know what you're talking about."
1: <laughs> and have have you seen Kara in Chicago yet?
4: No, I haven't. I have you
1: plan on maybe taking a trip over to Broadway.
4: You know, I don't know if I'll make it this weekend, but um I I would definitely love to see her perform. I really have a lot of respect for her and I really uh appreciated her throughout the entire um uh, Platinum Hit experience because I really felt like she understood me um the most out of all the judges and I, I really feel like she she understood my potential. Um and I I have run into her. I ran into her at a show recently and that was really nice to see her, so. She's a lady.
1: <laughs> good, because that Jewel was so nasty. So you needed to see there. Um, Jewel, now, she was
4: she was sweet. She was sweet as well. She just she does not pull her punches, which is something awesome about her.
1: <laughs> yes. yes, that's good. Um, now I see that you uh, recently performed at Pinktober Hard Rock Cafe, where Melissa Etheridge celebrated getting her star on the Hollywood yep. Walk of Fame. What was that like for you?
4: Oh, my God, that was just absolutely amazing. That was so much fun. Um, That was just a few days ago. Uh, Getting to walk the pink carpet and take pictures with Melissa Etheridge was pretty much a dream come true. And I got to perform, and I did one of her songs, The Letting Go, and uh, her fans were just amazing. Like, they were just, they were very attentive, and when I played her song, they were singing along and crying and and Melissa, you know, made sure to tell me and the other girl performing that, you know, she's like, oh, my God, I'm so excited that you're here. I checked out your music. You guys are fantastic. Like, she went out of her way to just be sweet and say hi to us, which was really awesome.
1: That is a tremendous compliment coming from yeah. a pro like her, yeah. I um, know. Now, Crazy. Th- this pink tober and the fact that it was a pink carpet, this was all to, to benefit breast cancer, is that why?
4: Yes. This is... This is actually the 12th annual Pinktober that Hard Rock um puts on. Hard Rock Cafe, uh they do a lot of Hard Rock live events and it's all mm-hmm. to raise money and raise awareness about breast cancer and they've been doing it for a long time and so many awesome people have gotten on board, um you know, obviously Melissa Etheridge, she's a spokesperson and it's it's just an amazing event and it's fun and it just it's a new way to just get people involved. In the, whole, in the whole cause and just raise money and sell lots of cool little things that all go to support the research.
1: You know, she uh, – I um, am an avid watcher of the late show with David Letterman, and uh, Melissa Etheridge gave the single greatest performance I've ever seen on that show uh, where she had just beaten cancer, and it was this song, I Run for Life, and it was yep. so moving, and Dave was so moved. It was incredible
0: yeah
4: she's a very passionate performer and person in general
1: yeah that's so cool now okay jess this new ep national holiday is every day a national holiday for you miss jess hudak
4: today and every day pretty much (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes yes my ep national holiday
1: and what were the influences behind this album for you
4: well, this record—it was a—it was a long time coming. I had worked in New York with a producer named Art Hayes, and we had made some—we uh, had made a, a demo. And then when I moved to LA, you know, I'd written some new songs. So I ended up including "No One in the World" and "Breakup Song." Those were my kind of New York songs. I, I wrote and recorded them when I was living in New York. And um, actually, the song "All Mine" on the EP is about the city of Manhattan. Um, When when I knew that I was moving, I was like, I need to write a love song for my city. And uh, I mean, I wanted to make an album that was upbeat and positive and inspiring and uh, to give people a little bit, uh, a taste of what I can do. And, um, so National Holiday, that song came after some of the other ones, but I knew that I wanted to call my record National Holiday and my producer Jim Roach who produced that song. We just had a blast making it. And yeah, I'm really proud of that album.
1: And and what would you say is your favorite track on the CD?
4: Hmm. I guess I I probably have to say Another Day, which is the final um track. It's uh a song I wrote for an independent film called Broken. Uh, and it's about just like how long it takes to to find yourself in life and how you can get you can get beat up and pushed around, but as long as you know what you wanna do and and your dreams, like you can do anything so um that song to me forever from uh the rest of my life I'll always be really proud of that song and and'll we'll perform it,
1: yeah, and what's your least favorite track
4: <laughs> you know what i don't I don't have a least favorite track um. <laughs> Uh-huh. I really don't. I guess. Uh,
0: yeah.
4: I I guess I don't listen to breakup song as much, but I think that's because <laughs> it makes me sad.
1: <laughs> uh, you're the first person to actually answer that question. That's interesting. Um, uh, okay. So uh, now another day. If it's all right with you, I'd love to break our listeners off with uh, with a little preview of that song. Is that okay? Great. Here is Jess Hudak with another day. Be right back with Jess.
2: Falling from my life
1: you weren't deep
2: <laughs> oh
1: <laughs> you, you got some pipes there and you're very deep um that's thank of, you a wonderful absolutely uh we should get to this show at rockwood music hall um yeah. now first of all you're getting a free show how does that work out
4: um well rockwood music hall i'm going to be on stage two Uh, I love Rockwood. It's one of my favorite places to play. I've been playing there for years and years. Um, And, yeah, it's uh, 21 and over. There's no cover charge. They do pass a bucket around. Um, But it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Baby Grand Piano. I have lots of amazing special guests. Uh, DJ Quickie Mart will be joining me on the ones and twos, laying down some hot beats. Um, Gotham Green, a rapper that I work with, he's going to be joining me for a little acoustic hip-hop. Um, Johnny Marnell from the show is joining me. Uh, and then my some of my best girlfriends, Brianna Sage and Kim Ent, uh will be uh, singing some backing vocals as well. So there's going to be a lot of stuff going on, a lot of fun. Um, 9 p.m. on Monday, October 3rd, Rockwood Music Hall Stage 2. Yes.
1: <laughs> when you said you were going to bring up some of your best girlfriends, I thought you just meant some random friend, but they're actually musicians as well.
4: Oh, yes, yes. My friend Kim, she toured for two years as Rihanna's. Backup singer, and now she's working on her own music. Uh, my friend Brianna, she's also a singer-songwriter. So I'm excited that I get to uh, come here and sing with them.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, it sounds like quite a uh, jam-packed show. Sure, get your money's worth. Um, <laughs> now, Jess, before uh, we go, um, I-, I love Rockwood Stage Two as well. By the way, I see my friends band there all the time, and it's it's such a great venue. Yeah. Before we go, we're going to do something we always do on the show. It's a game we like to play called Hot or Hot Mess, where I give you a list of things. And you, Jess Hudak, tell me if they are hot or a hot mess. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's open it up.
2: First up on Hot
1: or Hot Mess. Kanye West, hot or hot mess.
4: Um oh I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm gonna go hot.
1: Holla. Next up on Hot or Hot Mess, Kara Diaguardi doing Broadway, hot or hot mess.
4: Oh, I'm d- hot all the way. <laughs>
1: or
0: well, I'm hot, I'm hot. How about?
1: Um the new show X Factor, hot or hot mess.
0: Um I'm gonna go hot mess.
1: Really? Did you did you see it the other night?
4: Of course not. not. I have not watched it, but I'm just gonna assume. It's, um.
1: <laughs> that is a mess. Good deal. Yes. Um, how about the new judges on American Idol? Randy, Stephen, Kayla, hot or hot mess?
4: I, I'm going hot. I'm going
1: hot. Going hot. Um, mm-hmm. I shouldn't include Randy in there. The, the new lineup, I should say, not the new judges. Uh, <laughs> how, how about Justin Bieber? Hot or hot mess?
4: Um, I, I, according to the the kids these days, I believe he's hot. Okay. You believe
1: he's hot. Fair enough.
4: That's just what, that's just what the kids are telling me.
1: (laughs) What about this guy? Hot or hot mess?
4: I'm going to go hot mess.
1: You're, you're not down with?
4: Stay down the rule of I mean, well, that, that is always my favorite part of the song, though. So. It's a dance of the That is.
1: You better watch out. Kara wrote some of those songs, didn't she? Oh,
4: I know, I know. He's one of our
1: artists. <laughs> um, so uh, this next part of Hot or Hot Mess, we're just going to play you a couple audio clips from our show. You tell me if they're hot or a hot mess. Uh, first up, this is what happened. This is Ben Cameron from the original Broadway cast of Wicked and Footloose. Uh, describing what went down when he was at a Neil Diamond concert. He Just did three of encores of Sweet Caroline. I was unreal. <laughs> so he did three, a, th- three what? of the same uh, song?
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. In a row. Because people can't get enough. And then you've got a stadium full of people all screaming, so good, so good, so good! So good! <laughs> hot or hot mess? Hot
4: mess. That was awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can I ask you if if I promise you that I will come on Monday night, can you do 3 encores of the same exact song 3 times in a row?
4: Um, of course. <laughs> I don't know okay. what the venue will um, feel about it, but I will be I'll be in the <laughs> green room <laughs> singing.
1: You'll you'll do it okay after the show. Fair enough. It'll be outside. Um, We're
4: going to have a, a post-show encore triple repeat outside.
1: <laughs> and can it be a Sweet Caroline?
4: Yeah, and 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 that's so weird. My encore was gonna be Sweet Caroline. That's so awkward. <laughs> oh my god,
1: that is super. I just gave it away.
4: Damn it. Damn it.
2: <laughs> um,
1: what about this is hip hop legends? Biz Marquee beatboxing on our show. Hotter hot. <laughs> And last up on Hot or Hot Mess, this is Broadway's Jonathan DeMar, uh, his rip-torn impression. Mm, should be coming up. <laughs> Any second now. Mm, let's see if I can get it for you. It's odd. A little technical difficulty. I'm going to get my baseball bat. Here we go. And after that, he sort of says, he says, Somebody owes me a martini, and the whole <laughs> table cracks up. It's like, Somebody owes me a martini. Hot or oh. hot mess?
4: Hot. That was awesome.
1: Hot. Okay. Fair enough. Well, uh, Jess, uh, people can pick up the CD, uh, the EP. It is called National Holiday, and the show at 9 p.m., Rockwood Music Hall, Monday night. You can find more information at jesshudak.com. I cannot thank you enough. This is so much fun.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Take care. You too. Bye, Jeff. Um, Bye. I want to uh, end the show by thanking uh, the one and only Tony winner, Betty Buckley, and from platinum hit, Jeff Hudak, for stopping by. We'll be on the air next week. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Blazin' Rye Radio, and like us on Facebook, Blazin' Rye Radio, to find out what's going on. Until next time, I can think of no better way to end the show than by saying, if it ain't showbiz, It ain't a fizz. And lastly, somebody owes me a martini.